Well, one of the, the most terrifying experiences for a parent is that of losing track of a child and not knowing where they are. The initial feeling is one of disillusionment, not understanding why they're not right there next to you. Then it's the panic of searching for that child. And then as the seconds turn into minutes, it's the fear of what might be happening to them. Every parent, I'm sure, has experienced that at least once. I know that we have. However, when our child is found, there's a wave of mixed emotion. It's relief also uh, with joy. There's joy and relief. But what about when a parent loses their child spiritually? Sadly, this is an all-too-common ordeal. You raise your children in the faith, but at a certain point, they either fall into sin or they simply stop believing. This is altogether a different experience of emotions. Instead of a sudden terror, it's a slow-building fear and a concern for their eternal future. There's worry, there is sadness, there is even bewilderment. However, human parents aren't the only ones who deal with lost and straying children. The Bible calls God our Father, and those who belong to Him are His children. Yet the Bible teaches that all of us have gone astray at some point in time and have needed to be brought back to Him. How is it that we are brought back? Well, Luke 19.10 tells us that the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He searched us out. He found us. And He brought us home. And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian born again, you have been sought after, redeemed, and brought home to the Lord, and you ought to praise Him, and so do I, for that wonderful thing that He's done. And so this morning, we're going to look at all of this. We're going to see that the Father's will is not only that we, as believers, would be found and redeemed, but that none of His children would be lost. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 in your copy of Scripture. We're working our way through verse by verse Matthew 18, and you're seeing, I hope that you're seeing this with me, sort of this building momentum of truth in these verses. As we've been saying for weeks now, Matthew 18 is not only about church discipline. That's what it's famous for, but in fact, that little section that always is talked about, the the best-known section in Matthew 18, is only three verses long. There's so much more going on in this discourse, more than meets the eye. In the heart of this chapter, revolves around the Lord's own care for His little ones, His believers. And He warns that no one should cause them to stumble into sin. He even warns believers themselves not to put ourselves in a place where there are stumbling blocks that are going to trip us up and fall. Now, he's, He tells us that if we are caught in any kind of a sin, if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to sin, He says, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. Now, he's speaking metaphorically, of course, but one thing is clear that the Lord is passionately and intensely concerned for the spiritual well-being of His children. He cares about how you're doing, and He wants to ensure that we also care 
about how we're doing and how other people are doing as well. And it's with that heart in mind, his care, that we pick up Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Jesus is speaking here. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Now, verses 10 through 14 build off of what has been previously said. The big idea here, as we'll see, is that God cares deeply about His children and does not want to see them lost. Verse 10, verse 10 is similar in tone to verse 6, which we looked at several weeks ago. Verse 6 warns about causing believers to stumble into sin, while verse 10 uncovers the heart behind such a desire to hurt God's children. There's a thematic connection here between the two. So verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's the judgment for those who cause believers to stumble. But verse 10 says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, we need to remember that Jesus is saying all of this while he's holding a small child in his arms, according to verse 2. The child is functioning as a teaching device, as an, an illustration, as a symbol. Not only is the Lord's desire that all of us become like children in humility, in trust, in dependence of the Lord, but he also illustrates his love for us by giving us an example. Literally, the, the Lord of heaven and earth holding this small child in His arms. And the picture that they would have seen the disciples as they're sitting there looking at Him would have been something like this. I love you because you're my little children. And any parent in the room, anybody who has children of their own, you understand this very clearly. You hold your child in your arms, and the child has done nothing to deserve your love. Children don't earn the love of their parents, do they? No. This child is born, and within seconds, you have set your love on the child. And you just love them because you're the parent. And that is God's love. He has set His love on His children because He is the Father. And in His love, He instructs that no one despise one of them. No one despise. And the Greek word here, kataphroneo, it literally means to think down upon or scornfully look down upon. To put it in a modern, modern vernacular, it's something like don't look down your nose at them. And you understand what that's all about. This isn't just about how believers are treated. It's also about how they're regarded. You see the difference? It's not just what's done to them, it's how you feel, how you think of them. Now, certainly this command applies to non-believers, 
God passes judgment on those who would cause us to stumble according to verses 6 and 7. Absolutely. But in the context here, Jesus is addressing the disciples. He's talking to other believers, and He's telling them to be on guard when He says, see to it. He's saying, watch out, guys. See to it. Be on guard. Guard yourself against your own ill thoughts against other believers. But how is it that we do this? What What is the sin in this? Well, let me just go through some of these here. In verse 1, we see that there is inherent pride because all this originates from the disciples' question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It began with this prideful assertion that somehow somebody was greater than somebody else. If we think that we're greater than other people, then we're letting pride ruin us. And in envy and jealousy, we get upset because we don't receive the blessings that other people get, especially when we think that they don't deserve them as much as we do. Now, again, we never say this. We never say this out loud. But I'll tell you, our sinful and deceitful hearts, we believe this all the time. Why are they being blessed? I'm more faithful than they are. And yet we despise them when we do that. And this pride and jealousy trap ultimately leads to gossip and slander as we tear down other believers to other people. You see what they got? I didn't get that. They don't deserve that. Look, what, you know what they did, actually? Let me tell you about what they did. This is the trap we fall into. This is how we despise other believers. But the Lord tells us emphatically, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is a heart problem. Philippians 2.3 argues, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Again, it's not just the actions. It's the mind. It's the heart. It's the emotions. It's the regarding. It's how you think about people. With humility of mind, regard one another as being more important than yourselves. Let me ask you a question, church. How do you regard other believers? How do you look at them? How do you see them? Do you play nice, but deep down inside you're thinking, I could do better than that guy. I'm better than she is. Is that how we regard each other? Do we despise each other in our hearts? And I'll tell you, if we do, we need to repent. If I do, I need to repent. Not just of saying or doing the wrong thing, but for feeling, believing, and thinking the wrong thing about other believers. Because Jesus says, don't despise them. Don't despise them. Don't tear them down in your heart. It's not enough to outwardly attack them. We also are called not to despise them inwardly. Despising them in your heart is an inward attack. Maybe they don't see it, but God does. God knows how we think about each other. We can't fool Him. No, this is especially important with newer or even weaker believers. When people don't act or react in the way that you would do, it's very easy to judge them. Why are they doing that? I wouldn't do it that way. Now, if they're mature and they should know better, well, that's one thing. That's called holding somebody to a standard, and you, there's a way to approach that person biblically, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. If there's a stronger, more mature brother or sister, 
and they're caught in a trespass, the Bible says, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, watching out for yourself that you don't become guilty of the same sin. So that's one thing. But oftentimes what happens is that Christians don't often act like Christians because they're either spiritually mature or they're weak. They're weakened by something. And we should always do our best to be gracious. After all, we're called to love one another, aren't we? And what does love do? 1 Corinthians 13, 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let me ask you, do you bear with other people in your heart? Do you believe the best of them? Or do you presuppose what you think they might be feeling when they say or do X, Y, Z? Do you believe the best of people? Do you hope the best for people? Do you endure with them? Don't despise these little ones who are young or weak or are struggling. So many believers, they struggle. Romans 14, 1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on their opinions. In other words, don't just be nice to them so that you can have a door, an opportunity for yourself to criticize them. And you know how that goes. Well, if I can befriend that person and come alongside, then I can tell them what I really think. And don't we fall into that trap? We're gracious and kind just to get close enough to say what we really think. But Paul says don't do that. Instead, accept them. Don't despise them. Accept them because they're weak in faith. Bear with them. And, and again, this is a very tricky thing because at that point, we have to stand in some level of judgment to look at another person, another believer, another person who's been bought by the blood of Christ and say they're probably not as spiritually mature as I am. And we tremble as soon as we believe that, but to recognize they're struggling. I've been a Christian for 20 years. They've been a Christian for 20 days. You have to know the difference. And if you perceive... And the Bible says, you who are spiritual, that's always a tricky verse because, well, how do you know that? That's a judgment call. If you believe that you're spiritual, if you believe that you're mature and you're godly and you're righteous in terms of your standing on earth, how you conduct yourself, then you ought to treat a weaker believer with grace and patience and kindness and not despise them. Now, if you believe you're the weaker brother, well, then you got some work to do, don't you? Seeking those who are going to help you to grow in the faith. Romans 15, 1, Paul says it, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength and not just please ourselves. Paul says, we who are strong. Paul says, I know I'm a strong believer. Now, Paul also said, I'm the chief of sinners and the least of the apostles. He had a right view of who he really was. But he knew that he was strengthened in the faith. He knew he didn't have any besetting sins that were causing him to trip and stumble and fall everywhere. He knew that he knew the Word of God. He knew that he prayed. He knew that God had called him to spiritual ministry. He knew he was strong. And yet, he didn't use his strength in the faith, his, in the faith as a weapon against weaker believers. He didn't rub their nose in it. He didn't look down his nose at them. He said, no, we're, we actually have a greater responsibility 
to bear with those who are not strong, to bear with those who are weak in the faith and not just please ourselves. All this supports the picture that Jesus is painting here in Matthew 18.10, that we are to care for other believers the way that He does. And when He gives this supporting argument here, He gives a why we are to accept these little ones and not despise them. Look at what He says at the second half of verse 10. Why are we not to despise these little ones? For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, more heads have been scratched over this verse than few other verses in the Bible. And I read several commentaries, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I have an idea about what I think this verse means. I studied it out, but I want to pull the audience here. I want to go back and look at all 2,000 years of church history. I don't want to get this wrong. All right, brothers and sisters in Christ, what does this verse mean? And they're all over the place. And I I was really disappointed. I'm thinking, certainly Calvin or Spurgeon or Luther or MacArthur or Athanasius or someone's got this verse right. The point is, is that not that there's no meaning in the verse, but this is a challenging verse for many because we're just not clear on every little bit of information contained. It's admittedly a challenging verse. What does it mean? What does it mean? Some have used this verse as a proof text to teach that children have guardian angels. And I was actually reading in my study Bible that I have personally uh, this morning. I was going back through and I was reading, I write in my Bible. I was looking at my old notes to myself from years ago, and I looked at what I wrote about this verse, and I'm like, that's not it. (laughs) That's not what that means. Uh, So I'm, I'm learning too, my friends. I'm not so sure I'm the Romans 15.1 strong here because I don't know if I understand. Is it true that children have guardian angels? That's a popular belief, especially in culture. It's a sentimental belief. We love to believe that all children have these guardian angels hanging around them. And this is one of the primary references here, except that we have to understand that this verse is not talking about physical children per se. Now, what about just all people in general? You know, anytime a person almost gets hit by a car and then gets out of the way the last possible second, we say, oh, I had a guardian angel watching out for me that day. Is it true that every single person on earth who doesn't get hit by a car has a guardian angel? Is that how that works? Again, it's a lovely and sentimental idea, but there's no basis for it in Scripture. It was a belief in some realms of Jewish literature, even the Apocrypha, the book of Tobit, has a single reference to this concept of guardian angel, but that's not Scripture. Again, the Lord never teaches this, and yet we know that angels exist. We know that they're real. We don't understand as much as we'd like to understand about them, but we know that they're here. They're created beings by the Lord. He, he creates them to serve Him and, he, and to fulfill His divine purposes. As for their relationship to the inhabitants of earth, all of us, what is our relationship to angels? We know that Daniel 10.13 refers to Michael the archangel ministering on behalf of the people of Israel against their enemies, and so we see an example here of one angel to represent and to minister to an entire nation of people, one angel for one whole nation. In the seven letters of the churches of Revelation, 
we see that angels are connected to individual churches. The seven churches, seven angels there. So one angel per church now. In fact, Hebrews 1.14 makes references, uh, a, re- a reference to angels as ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And so we know that God enlists His angels to help for the sake of His people, whether that be the nation of Israel or a specific church, or some commentators believe that it's an angel that is ministering on behalf of all the saints, that somehow all of us together are assigned one angel who stands before the throne of heaven to minister. That's one theory. But what is the nature of their service? What does it mean that they're ministering to us? But we're not exactly sure about that. We do know that they render some kind of spiritual service to us on behalf of those who are being saved. And I was thinking about what that could be this week, and maybe that is to protect newer believers from demonic attacks. Because you know, as soon as a person hears the gospel message, wants to give their life to Christ through regeneration, they want to confess the Lord, they want to confess their sins, they believe in Jesus, you know that there's an alarm in hell somewhere that goes off and says, we just lost one. Because we know that there's demonic activity on this planet. If you don't believe that there is, I don't really know what to do for you. Wake up. I mean, there's, there are demons that are working in this world, in this realm, trying to destroy what Christ is doing. And so it could be that angels are sent to protect us from demonic attack when we're new in the faith. Maybe they are to guard us physically from death until the point we get to come to Christ. Ever think about that, that maybe we're being protected until we can actually come to faith? That could be. But the bottom line is that we really don't exactly know. We don't know what their ministry to us is. We can only speculate. But we do know that they minister on behalf of the saints who are inheriting salvation. We do know that they are ministering spirits to us. They do help us in some way. And frankly, just as a believer, I actually feel bad that I don't know that we don't know how they minister to us because I love to thank them. Maybe someday when we get to heaven, we'll see all the angels that have been helping us along the way, and maybe that'll be the opportunity to thank them. My suspicion is if we knew, we would tend to venerate angels and bow down and worship them. And we see examples in Scripture when people try to do that, and the angels get very angry and say, don't you dare worship me. Worship him who sent me. So I think there could be something to that. But so much of this sermon is speculation at this point. (laughs) What does this mean? What does this mean? Verse 10, what does it mean? One view that I read that a lot of scholars have latched on to that has received traction is that Jesus is referring here to the spirits of the little ones, his believers, after they die, that somehow they go to behold the face of the Father in heaven. However, James Boyce has said, and I agree with this, the problem with this view is that Christians don't become angels after they die. We say that sentimentally. Oh, Heaven has received another angel when one of our people dies. That's not true. We don't become angels. We remain as human beings who are made in the image of God, redeemed in Christ. We remain as souls who belong to Him. That doesn't change. 
No, I believe a better way to understand this verse is that it's speaking to the angels who minister to all of us collectively in similar fashion to Romans, uh, Revelation 2 and 3, that it's not that we individually have an angel. I don't have like Harry, the angel next to me who is ministering to me, my own personal angel. We don't seem to find that, but we do find angels that minister to all of us. Maybe there is an angel of Harvest Bible Church if Revelation 2 and 3 are any indication. Again, we don't know exactly, but it seems plausible. Even if that is not to be known for sure, and that is the most difficult part of the verse is understanding what that part means, but what does this have to do with the context of the passage? Why does Jesus say this, especially if it's a difficult verse to understand? Why does Jesus mention that the believer's angels are there in the same breath as he warns about people despising his little ones? Well, I think we can piece it together here. Do you remember what happens to the 185,000 Assyrians that are preparing to attack and wipe out all of Israel in 2 Kings 19? What does God do? He sends a single angel who wipes out the entire army in one night. One angel wipes out 185,000 enemy soldiers to protect Israel. And so when we read that, we understand that they're capable of this, aren't, aren't we? They can do quite a bit. They have strength. They have power given to them by God. Add to that here, the Lord has already promised judgment against those who would cause believers to stumble in verse 6. And now he warns again that his little ones are not to be despised, and especially those little ones who are young, weak, struggling believers, those who've been scandalized and despised on earth. He says there are angels in heaven who have been charged with the task of ministering to them until they come home, and these ministering angels continually see the face of God in heaven and stand ready to defend God's people if He calls them to do so. I think Jesus' comment here is about God's angels who will protect those who are attacked. And I think that his comment here is meant to strike fear in the hearts of those who would be enemies of the church, as well as comfort for the downcast little ones who belong to him. We're not just by ourselves here. The Lord has sent angels to minister to us. See, God has gone to great lengths to bring believers home. He has sent His only begotten Son to seek and save the lost and rescue them. He also sent His Spirit to indwell us and keep us growing. And then He has sent angels to serve us and protect us until we can get home. Little children, let your hearts be encouraged. Even if you're tired and weary, and you feel like you're stumbling along the way and despised by other people, God will get you home. You don't have to worry. God will get you home. You'll make it. As we'll see in verses 15 to 17, not only has God sent angels to help us, He has also sent a fellowship of saints 
who gently correct us and guide us back to Him. And we're going to see all that in the coming verses here. But I just want to reiterate to you, look how much God has done to make sure that you get to Him. Now, verse 11 does not appear in every modern translation. And the reason is, is because many scholars, Bible scholars, do not believe that it actually shows up. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. We do know that, but they don't believe that it's authentic to Matthew's gospel specifically. However, we do find the exact phrase, the same words, in Luke 19.10, which some scholars believe is a parallel passage to Matthew 18. Yet the contexts are different. They're slightly different. Regardless, we know that these are the words of Jesus Christ, and we understand and are encouraged by their truth. Whether or not verse 11 is authentic to Matthew's gospel, we understand that the heart here is the same, that Jesus desires to find, rescue, and restore his little ones. And so whether some scribe inserted that here because he believed it belonged here, that's not really the argument. The truth is the same here. It supports the verse 10. And so verse 12 and 13 continue to illustrate that same theme, that desire of the Lord that His little ones are not despised, that they're protected, that they're saved, that they're redeemed. The same idea, verses 12 and 13. What do you think, Jesus says? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, he does not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one who's straying? If it turns out he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. This parable makes common use of what is seen oftentimes in Israel, this shepherd and sheep analogy. Furthermore, the imagery of shepherds and sheep is prevalent in Scripture. <clears throat> in many places, God's people are referred to as sheep. Psalm seventy-seven twenty, God is said to have led His people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. After Israel strayed from the Lord, He, he tells them, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding, Jeremiah 3.15. Sadly, however, the shepherd leaders of Israel abdicate their responsibility, causing Jeremiah to say in verse 10, for the shepherds have become stupid. And they have not sought the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. This is the indictment against the bad shepherds that don't care for the flock. Shepherds are, are mandated to care for the, the Lord's flock. And in Israel, they were not. Yet, the sheep are not absolved from their own guilt. Isaiah 53, 6 laments, For all of us, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. So yes, the shepherds maybe didn't lead us the right way. And even in churches today, there are many times, unfortunately, where shepherds do not lead their people in the right direction. Every week, it seems, I hear somebody who's been hurt by a pastor or an elder. I've heard it the other way around, too. Sheep who wound the pastors and wound the elders. I was praying for a friend of mine even this week who's pastoring a church, and there was members in his own church that were going after him and his wife and viciously attacking them. And he was texting me, please pray for us. Please pray for us. And so this is a broken 
world, isn't it? A broken thing. So we're not, we're not absolved from the responsibility of being accountable to God. We do as sinful people. As sinful people, we stray from the Lord. And this is ever the plight of those who stray from the Lord. We wander away from the Lord. We wander away from His flock and we follow after our own selfish and sinful desires, we want to go our own way. We want to do what makes us happy. And that only leads to ruin. We wander away. We get ourselves lost. But in contrast to the false shepherds and the hired hands, the Bible depicts the Lord Jesus as the good shepherd. The good shepherd who knows his sheep and gives up his own life to save them, John 10, 11. A good shepherd always goes after straying sheep. And that's what the parable portrays. Jesus poses the question. Again, verse 12, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for that one who is straying? Isn't a shepherd going to do that? And the expected answer is yes. Yes, you do. Even a shepherd who has a large flock and a hundred sheep, according to that tradition, that time, if you're a shepherd with a hundred sheep, that's a big flock. And you wouldn't just let one of your sheep go astray. That would be negligence, especially if the flock is owned by somebody else. So what does he do? Well, he secures the other, other sheep. He doesn't just bail on the rest of them and leave them to hang out to dry and be attacked by the wolves. He brings those sheep to the mountain and beds them there, and then he goes after the one who's straying. Verse 13, and if it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. He finds that missing sheep, the one who's gone astray, who's been wandering Oftentimes, shepherds would find their sheep and they'd be caught in the thicket, maybe. They have burrs and thorns all over them. Maybe they've fallen into a ditch. Maybe they're cold and malnourished. So the shepherd would pick them up and mend them and tend to them and bring them back to the flock and restore them. Now, when we look past the immediate story, we see that this is not merely agricultural. This is ecclesiastical and pastoral. The parable is used to illustrate the truth that the Lord God, the good shepherd, intends to go after lost sheep. Verse 11 again, in light of Luke 19, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, there are a few applications of this parable. One has to do with repentance. Go over to Luke 15, if you would, please. (coughs) Excuse me. Luke 15. The whole theme of Luke 15 is lost and found. Lost and found. In this chapter, we see the parable of the lost coin, the woman who loses one coin and goes and tears her house apart to find it. Followed by, we see the parable of the prodigal son, the son who wanders away and then comes back. So it's all about lost and found. But the parable is told in response 
to an accusation made by the Pharisees. So the very first parable that it's told in this chapter comes at the very beginning, verses 1 through 7. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Him to listen to Him, talking about Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I want you to notice here that the religious leaders of Israel are rebuking Jesus for accepting known sinners into fellowship. To be clear, sinners, the tax collectors and the drunks and the prostitutes and all these sinful people who are notably sinful are coming to Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes are trying to keep them from coming to Him. They don't stand at the door and they don't block out those people, but they go to Jesus and say, why are you accepting them? They were trying to hinder sinners from coming to the Lord. And do you remember what Jesus says about anyone who causes other people to stumble and hinder them from coming to faith? But here, in response to this, Jesus tells them the parable of the lost sheep. Now, one reason for the parable is certainly to judge the Pharisees because they're not coming to Him in repentance. But the other side of it demonstrates how the Lord views the restoration of a sinning, straying sheep. When someone repents, heaven erupts in rejoicing. And I'll tell you, even not just heaven, but the church on earth as well. When there's been situations, now at our church here in 10 years, we have never had a, a church discipline situation that's gone all the way to the assembly. That's not happened. But I will tell you that there have been countless, countless situations that have gone to the first or second step. And by God's grace, either they have repented and have been restored privately and quietly, or they have hardened their hearts and they've left. But the point is here that God loves repentance, God loves humility, God loves restoration. And when a person is restored, you rejoice. They come back, their sins are forgiven, and you say, praise God. They've come home to us. They've come home to Him. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner that turns in repentance. But let me tell you, God hates pride, and He hates self-righteousness, and He hates self-importance, and you'll have none of it. Go back to Matthew 18. Now, Luke 15 is not parallel to Matthew 18 exactly, even though Jesus uses the same parable, but He uses the same parable in two different contexts, meaning that these are probably two different occurrences 
He tells one parable to this audience at this time. He tells the same parable to this audience for a different purpose at a different time. So they're not parallel, but they are overarching in their truth. They are complementary. Again, God loves finding and restoring lost sheep. And I oftentimes will hear from people who are caught in sin. It's, I've sinned too much. It's just, God's not, he's just not going to forgive me. He's forgiven me so many times I've, just, I've gone beyond the bounds of forgiveness. There's no hope for me. He's done with me. My friend, you don't know the Scriptures or the heart of God. God is never just done with us. He should be because of our sin, but He's not. God restores and loves to restore people back to faith. He loves restoration. He loves humility. He loves repentance. Isn't that what David says in Psalm 51? Oh Lord, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Again, the parable of lost sheep in Matthew 18, this very well may include an element of repentance. Repentance has to be there. If you're in sin, turn away from it. Repent, get right with God. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. Forgive me. And if you've sinned against another person, ask for their forgiveness. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. But the broader context of Matthew 18 here, the parable, the broader context is really any level of stumbling or sinning or struggling or straying. It's not distinctly sinful behavior that needs repentance. It's, it's not explicitly that. It could also be a weakened believer who's fallen off or somebody who has stumbled because of the behavior of somebody else or someone who's just caught in, a, in a, a, a repeated trespass over and over again and they've just fallen. There's many degrees of this. I'm not minimizing the sinful component here, by the way, but I'm saying there's many, many degrees of how this could be interpreted. The broader idea here is that a person has strayed and wandered away, and there is a virtue here. The virtue of the parable of verses 12 and 13 is that we see that God will go to great lengths to restore and rescue His sheep. Verse 14, so it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. When someone's caught in sin and they're falling off the wagon, God doesn't look down at, from heaven and say, well, see, there you go. That's what you get for wandering away. We do that sinfully, but God doesn't do that. Verse 14, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that any of you would perish. He doesn't want that. Why would He send His Son and the Spirit and the angels and the church who loves you? Why would He do that if He wants you to be ruined? But Satan will use that argument against us and say, He's done with you. Just give up. Go home. Shame. It's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God that you'd be lost and ruined. He loves, He loves you. He loves His children. And you all who have children, you love them. You give your life for them, and we're sinners. 
God who's perfect loves his children. And this is so important in light of verses 16, 15, 16, and 17, as we're going to see. God goes to great lengths to restore his children. But look at again, verse 3, God calls us to humble ourselves like children. Verses 6 and 7, God condemns those who would cause us to stumble. Verses 8 and 9, He commands us to guard ourselves against our own stumbling blocks. He warns us here from despising little ones. In short, God again has gone to great lengths to see that His children are rescued, redeemed, protected, guarded, guided, loved, sanctified, sustained, and brought home. He will not stop until every one of His children is home. Be encouraged by that. We read in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Of whom is He speaking? Is it the whole world? No. It is not the whole world. You, in the context, is the believers who are reading that letter. So who is the you? It's His little ones. It's His believers. And I'll tell you, God works in decades many times. You pray for someone, you pray for someone, it just seems like they're wandering and wandering, and you say, Lord, bring them home. And then one day, they come home. And you say, Lord, it took forever. God is not slow as some count slowness. He's on His own timetable. A day for Him is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. Beloved, be encouraged. God will get you home. He will bring you home. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. The Lord has come to seek and save the lost. What happens, however, when a believer falls into sin? What happens when they are caught in a trespass? Well, God sends a messenger, a messenger of peace, a messenger of exhortation, one who will call you to repentance and one who seeks to restore you. And that messenger of God is none other than a Christian believer who loves you and desires to see you come back to the Lord. And that's what we're going to talk about next week, is when God uses a Christian to function as an agent of reconciliation, to help to bring you back home. Again, we'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, it is my earnest prayer and desire that as a servant who just speaks your word that I have represented your heart for your people today, Lord. I pray that I have, I believe that I have. The scriptures are so clear that it is not your will that even one of your children be lost. Lord, if any of your children could be lost, I would argue that you are not God because you are omnipotent, you are omniscient, you are sovereign, and you are love personified. And Lord, your righteousness goes all the way to the heavens. What does the Scripture say, O Lord? 
A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not extinguish. Are you not tender and loving toward those who are hurting and weak and struggling? Is that not your heart when you say, Oh, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And you say to us, O Lord, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. O Lord, that truth is such a wonderful balm to our souls. It's a ministering ointment to our troubled hearts that you desire to bring us home, to restore us. And Lord, as we plunge ourselves into verses 15, 16, and 17, Lord, that we would see this same heart displayed, that we would not use these verses as an opportunity to attack sinning believers, but rather to see that We are to be your agents of reconciliation here, O Lord. And as we work through Matthew 18, I believe that you have brought this to us providentially. Every verse that comes across this pulpit to your people, Lord, I believe is brought to us providentially. That you desire this church, these people, to understand and learn and grow in what it means to be reconciled in what it means to confront lovingly those who are in sin, what it means to restore others with a spirit of gentleness, what it means to bring people back to You. Lord, help us to understand Your heart. And as we turn, Lord, to Your table, help us to understand and see that this table is a means of grace to us that You have demonstrated to us just how far You would go to bring us home. How far did You go? You gave up Your only Son. You gave Your only begotten Son who was sinless and flawless to die at the hands of rotten sinners like us. But You did so in order to redeem us to make us adopted children. Oh, the heart of God, your loving kindness to us, how marvelous you are. And so as we turn to your table, Lord, I pray that we would receive this with a spirit of humility and thankfulness and praise you for your amazing grace. I ask all this in Jesus' name.